these wage and hour laws are seen as being so important that settlements themselves are subject to court approval. But if they do not receive court approval, they're not enforceable. So in some states like Maryland, for example, provide in their statute for treble damages, which is three times the amount claimed. So compliance with wage and hour laws, especially when it comes to classifications, exceedingly important as there could be some substantial monetary damages and penalties that could be associated with infractions. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fourth episode of our series on risk prevention strategies. Misclassification of workers can lead to stiff penalties and burdensome, expensive, and unnecessary litigation, with businesses often facing large settlements and payouts, even exclusion from government procurements. And enforcement against employee misclassification is only expected to increase in the coming years. Understanding how to spot and prevent employee misclassification is thus key to protecting your business. In this episode, Sarah Nash and Matt Kreiser, attorneys in Polaro Maza's Labor and Employment and Litigation and Dispute Resolution Groups, sit down to discuss what employers need to know about employee misclassification and how to avoid it. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining today's presentation on employee misclassification, the high cost in doing so, and what employers should know to mitigate their risk. This is an installment in Polaro Maza's risk prevention series, which is designed to offer businesses and employers insight into common problems and preventative measures that may help avert further issues with their industry, including litigation. My name is Matthew Kreiser, and I, along with my co-host, Sarah Nash, will be presenting this important topic to you all today. Sarah is a partner in Polaro Mazda's Labor and Employment Group, and she advises and counsels employers on a wide range of labor and employment-related matters, including issues arising out of the FLSA, state wage and hour laws, and importantly, employee classification. Myself, again, I'm Matthew Kreiser, and I'm an attorney in the firm's litigation and dispute resolution group. I represent a wider range of businesses in complex commercial litigation matters before state and federal courts, which includes litigating claims under the FLSA and state wage and hour laws. A little bit about our firm. Flero Mazza is a business law firm that provides legal services to commercial entities, government contractors, and healthcare providers. We offer a wide range of legal services to business including counseling on wage and hour matters, along with representation if claims are brought into court. Sorry, I had to give a little plug for our litigation group. Overview of today's presentation. To provide an overview, we will be discussing a number of topics related to the classification of employees and personnel. We will be primarily focusing on the distinctions between exempt and non-exempt employees under the FLSA and the differences between employees and independent contractors under the Department of Labor or DOL's regulations. Now, some of the issues we'll touch on today uh, when discussing these topics are very nuanced and could be their own separate presentation. For example, specific FLSA exemptions under the statute and their applicability to employees. In the interest of time, we cannot go too in-depth on some of these issues due to their complexity. So, for today, we will be discussing an overview of the importance of properly classifying employees and a business's personnel. The FLSA and some basics with regard to the statute's minimum wage provisions 
and overtime pay requirements. The distinguishment between exempt and non-exempt employees most commonly used FLSA exemptions, the difference between an employee and an independent contractor, common errors that lead to misclassifications of employees, and the potential cost of misclassifying personnel. Misclassification, whether it be decisions concerning uh, whether an employee is exempt or non-exempt, or whether an employee is an independent contractor, misclassification is one of the most common infractions of the FLSA and the DOL's regulation. Classification and misclassification affects virtually every business industry. No one and no business is immune to problems stemming from improper classification. Since the early 2000s, we've seen cases concerning private and government enforcement of wage and hour laws, including the FLSA, to have nearly quadrupled, which poses a significant risk to businesses and employers. Specifically, enforcement of wage and hour laws has become a focus of the DOL and opportunistic plaintiff's lawyers. Now, why is that? Generally, there are important public policies to ensure that workers, and especially when it comes to low-wage workers, that they are being paid correctly and receiving all the compensation that they're entitled to receive in performing their duties. Wage and hour laws are seen as so important that persons, even if they're willing to do so, cannot privately consent to waiving the applicability of state and federal wage and hour provisions. Um, there, are, there is one general exception, which we'll discuss later for independent contractors, that they are not subject to the FLSA or state wage and hour laws. And wage and hour statutes themselves, be it the FLSA or for your applicable state, um, provide incentives to employees and the government to enforce their provisions. For example, the FLSA, um, in addition, if there is a um, claim brought under the statute, um, the employer could be liable for back uh, overtime wages for approximately two to three years, depending on the nature of the infraction, an equal amount payable as liquidated damages and attorney's fees, which given the nature of the business, the number of employees can be quite significant. These wage and hour laws are seen as being so important that settlements themselves are subject to court approval. When they do not receive court approval, they're not enforceable. So in some states like Maryland, for example, provide in their statute for treble damages, which is three times the amount claimed. So compliance with wage and hour laws, especially when it comes to classification, is exceedingly important as there could be some substantial monetary damages and penalties that could be associated with infractions. Lastly, wage and hour laws themselves, the way that statutes are written, are lended to uh, having class and collective action claims brought if a segment of a workforce is misclassified or not paid properly. Now, admittedly, properly classifying employees can be difficult, and it is behooved on some instances, whether you seek advice through us or through another law firm, um, counsel can be useful uh, and can be a useful tool to ensure that uh, on the front end, if employees are properly classified, or on the back end, if litigation does arise. So, with that being said, um, it is important to rec- for businesses to recognize that misclassification occurs no matter what segment or industry they're in, how misclassification affects their businesses and their bottom line, and the best ways to respond to minimize and mitigate against liability. I'm going to turn it over to Sarah who's going to talk to you a little bit about the FLSA and some basics. Sarah? Thanks, Matt. Great introduction. Hi, everyone. Um, excited to be talking to you about one, this topic today. It's one of my favorite topics in the labor and employment world. As Matt mentioned, it can be very difficult. Um, that said, it is 
not a science so much as an art. So while there are cases out there that specifically identify um, where some employees would be exempt and others would be non-exempt, more times, more often than not, you are looking at job classifications uh, that do not fit within a neat description, especially with the way the workforce is nowadays. You're really dealing with those tough calls uh, more often than perhaps we were uh, even a decade ago. And so our focus today is going to be giving you some tools that will help you get the right answer. I do want to mention that it's important to run this analysis when you are onboarding employees. If you're a government contractor, it could even be important to do it before that point where you're preparing a bid because you want to make sure that you have, you know, uh, classified people correctly so that you know what type of uh, pay they will be entitled to down the road. For those who may not be familiar with the Fair Labor Standards Act, it is a federal law that was enacted by Congress in the 1930s, and its goal is essentially to provide a minimum wage and overtime requirements for uh, all employers, regardless of size. That means that ultimately the FLSA is, it deals with some record-keeping obligations and child labor laws as well, but really the most uh, relevant regulations and requirements relate to minimum wage and overtime pay. Uh, with respect to minimum wage, it's been this way for quite some time. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Uh, most states by now have implemented rules, laws that require a higher state minimum wage. Ultimately, it's important that you're paying the higher of uh, whatever state or locality where the work is being performed. Uh, for example, uh, in uh, California, there the minimum wage is much higher than 7 to 25, depending on the locality and depending on the size of an employer, you could be looking at a $15 minimum wage. The FLSA requires employers to pay overtime compensation to all non-exempt employees. We're going to go into detail today about what, how you know if someone is non-exempt. And when you, we refer to non-exempt, it's saying that they are not exempt from the FLSA regulations. And the biggest sort of requirement that pops up more often than not is this overtime pay requirement. And the FLSA requires that overtime pay which is any hours worked in excess of 40 hours during a regular work week must be paid at time and a half the regular rate of pay for that employee. It's important to remember that there are a number of states out there that impose additional requirements beyond just that 40-hour work week. For example, California and Alaska both require overtime pay for hours worked over eight in a work day. Uh, so just because uh, you have not necessarily exceeded that 40-hour threshold doesn't mean that you can stop your analysis. But uh, because of our limited time today, we are going to focus on those federal requirements. I always like to remind folks, though, that it's important to remember where the work is being performed because often there will be state-specific requirements that tag on. You are required to comply with the FLSA regardless of whether an employee um, waives certain obligations or agrees to work uh, under different rules. This is not the sort of thing that you can pick and choose. Um, and 
as Matt will discuss later, it's really important that you comply with these obligations because otherwise there are a number of uh, damages and penalties that could be taxed to an organization. Sometimes folks have the wrong understanding about holidays. Um, we'll get cl- questions from clients that might say, doesn't the FLSA require that I pay time and a half for holidays or that I pay uh, double time? Uh, the answer is no. There is no obligation, even under the FLSA, to provide holidays to employees. There are some rules, especially if you're a government contractor, that will obligate holiday pay. Or if you're working with a union, you might be obligated to provide time and a half for certain hours. But that is separate and apart from the FLSA. So we could honestly spend an hour just talking about FLSA exemptions. But this slide gives you the basic tests that are applied when evaluating uh, an employee to see whether they fall as an exempt or non-exempt employee. One of the most common reasons for misclassification relates to not understanding the specific tests that are that employee must meet in order to be qualified as exempt from the FLSA. Those two specific tests are described as the salary basis test and the job duties test. Um, again, I could spend much more time than we have today talking about these two tests. There's a lot of cases out there. Um, if you have questions along the way, Matt and I would be happy to address them as we go through this. Um, but I'm going to try to give you a fairly comprehensive overview of these two tests um, right now. The salary basis test requires that in order to be to classify an employee as an exempt, the employee must be paid on a salary basis. And there's a couple requirements that go along with that. One is that the employee is paid essentially the same pay week after week. Uh, it does not vary based on the number of hours they work. So, for example, if an employee is working 35 hours during one work week, uh, and they have been classified as exempt. That means that the company cannot deduct five hours from their pay based on the fact that they only worked 35 hours. They need to consistently be paid that salary uh, regardless of hours work. I say that with a caveat, however, because there are certain exceptions under the FLSA where a salaried employee can be paid less than their salary. Uh, there are very limited circumstances. I'm not going to go all of them, go over all of them now. One example would be if they have just started the work week, for example, they start on a Wednesday. That is one exemption where they are the company is permitted to pay them less than their salary because they're only working three days out of the week and you can reduce their salary accordingly. Another example is a full day off for personal reasons. If the employee has decided that they would like to take a day off, perhaps they do not have PTO, uh, the company could, if they decided to, approve that day off and would not be obligated to pay the day that they took off uh, because that was a full day off for personal reasons. This does not apply to partial day absences. Uh, in that example that I gave earlier, if an employee only works 35 hours, that means that one of those days was presumably a partial day absence. 
the company could not deduct that amount of pay from the employee's paycheck without compromising the exemption. Some might wonder, what's the big deal? What if you do compromise the exemption? Again, we'll go over some of the consequences of misclassifying. But if you were to misclassify or improperly deduct wages from a salaried employee and compromise their exemption, that means that any time over 40 they worked in a work week would necessarily need to be paid at time and a half because they're no longer going to be classified as exempt. As you can imagine, this can snowball very quickly. Another requirement under the salary basis test is that employees be paid a minimum salary. This was recently increased in 2020. Uh, it was increased from somewhere in the $400 per week to $684 per week. It's really important to keep this threshold in mind. This minimum threshold means that if you pay someone less than $684 per week, they may not be classified as exempt. So if you have an administrative professional who's paid $32,000 per year, that employee, as a matter of fact, cannot be classified as exempt because they do not satisfy the salary basis test. Certain states, uh, for example, New York and California, have state salary basis thresholds that are actually higher than the 684 a week. So again, it's important to keep an eye out for uh, which employees are working in what states, just so that you can make sure that you understand whether those state additional requirements apply. We received a couple of questions. If a position is defined as 30 hours per week and the salary is calculated based on the 30 hour per week, part-time employees, which is someone, I would say that someone who's working only 30 hours could be classified as a part-time employee, can satisfy the salary basis test. However, it's important that they are still making above that $684 per week. This can be difficult to do. For example, if they're only working five hours a week, it's hard to meet that test. So you, it's perfectly acceptable to have someone who's only working 30 hours per week. Um, they can be classified as exempt, but they still need to meet that 684 per week. And unfortunately, there's no exception for part-time work that allows you to take a portion of that value. You still need to hit that full 684. Another question is how you can satisfy those partial day absences. They ask, can you have exempt employees utilize PTO in a half-day increments? Absolutely. That's completely fine. I should specify when we're dealing with the salary basis test, the important consideration is to know whether that employee is being paid. So whether they're being paid through regular work hours or being paid through their PTO, that will satisfy those salary basis requirements. The issue comes in where they do not have PTO to necessarily cover those partial day absences. And so a company might think that they can just not take, have them take leave without pay. But there are some really uh, bad consequences that can come as a result of putting someone who's salaried on leave without pay. So you just want to make extra careful, be extra careful that you've satisfied those requirements. One more question, just clarifying 30 hours of work, whether it satisfies the full-time requirement for benefits. It can depend on your benefit plan. Under the Affordable Care Act, I believe the rule is 
and I'm I'm going to get it wrong. So I don't want to say, I think it's 32 hours. If you work more than 32 hours per week, you have an obligation to provide that employee with healthcare benefits, assuming that you're an eligible employer under the act. And so really, these other than the Affordable Care Act, it's up to the company on how they want to define part-time work. One more question, and then I'm going to jump into the job duties test. This question asks, can you dock a salaried employee taking a full day off in a week and have no pay, paid leave available if it's in your handbook? I think what we're getting at there is, thank you, someone has corrected me that ACA is 30 hours for full-time employees. I have not looked at it in a little bit, so I, I really appreciate that. Back to this question about whether you can dock a salaried employee for full day at off. If it's for a personal reason, yes. If, on the other hand, it is because the company has, for example, there's inclement weather and the company has said, don't come in today. It's very snowy outside and we don't want folks coming in in the snow. We're closing the offices. That does not qualify as a personal reason, which means that that full day absence would not qualify as a exception to the salary basis test. One more question. I know I said that was my last one, but there's one more here. And I think this is a really interesting area of the law. So I really welcome questions to be able to focus on some of the real world issues that are popping up. I hope it's helpful for those who are on the line. This question asks, can you classify a position as exempt and pay full-time employees in that position on a salary, but part-time employees hourly? Yes, absolutely. That is a great way to sort of deal with the part-time salary basis issue. As long as you have a good reason for why employees are classified as exempt when they're full-time and non-exempt when they're part-time, strike that, reverse it, completely acceptable to get the job done that way. Moving on to the job duties test, which we talk a little bit about here and on the next slide, the job duties test ultimately is going to look at the work that the employee actually performs. And it's really important that that emphasis actually performs is included because often we'll get a lot of clients, for example, to just give us a job title and say, oh, well, they're VP of human resources. So clearly they're exempt. If that person, regardless of their title, is in the back uh, filing papers all day without any independent discretion, that is going to disqualify them from being exempt. So it's important as you're looking through these issues that you're really um, evaluating the actual job duties that are performed. So the SLSA excludes certain jobs and employees from its overtime pay provisions. And this is really getting into that issue of the job duties test. Exemptions, there's a recent case law that gives employers a little bit more benefit of the doubt than it used to. That said, the DOL is still going to heavily scrutinized classifications. And one of the best ways to avoid scrutiny is to make sure that you're documenting the reason for your classification. There is a safe harbor in the law that essentially says, if you have attempted to classify the employees, which means you have a record of describing the job duties and you have a reason for why you believe that they are exempt under one of the named exemptions, that will save you from certain penalties. So it's really, we always recommend that, especially if there are job positions that might go one way or the other, get a thorough review of those job duties and include them somewhere documented in a personnel file so that if there is 
a DOL investigation down the line, you have records that show that you actually did put thought into the way that you've classified folks. Matt would be upset at me if I did not also mention there are exceptions to certain employer industries. So the Railway Labor Act, Motor Carriers Act, they are excluded from FLSA coverage. Matt, did you have anything else you wanted to add about those exceptions? Thank you for giving my shout out there to my, one of my favorite acts, the Motor Carriers <laughs> Anytime. Act. Anytime. Um, <laughs> just to build off that, sometimes you can kind of, employers can back in to, to protection under the FLSA. Uh, the, the Motor Carrier Act reminds me of a case I was on here a while ago that dealt with trash removal and other kind of refuge removal services, the businesses nationwide. And they classified their employees that were on the trucks, picking up the trash, driving the trucks, all those, as I'm going to talk about in a little bit, uh, independent contractors. And when I met with them after a lawsuit was filed, a lot of times when there's misclassification that occurs, it's kind of brought to the employer's attention through either a claim for, for benefits that, that's given to employees or to non-exempt employees, such as overtime. And these matters have to get resolved. And looking in at you know, their classification of the persons as independent contractors, they ended up being quite clearly employees. But they got lucky because the persons were, that were working on the trucks were subject to the Motor Carriers Act. They were, did not qualify for overtime under the FLSA's provisions. Now, with that being said, now that they're employees, which I'm going to talk about a little later, there was tax consequences <laughs> that are associated with that, but not to steal too much of Sarah's airtime, there are exceptions to the FLSA by statute in addition to the jobs that are itemized under the statute. Thanks, Sarah. Anytime. Thanks. Thanks for that rundown, Matt. So yeah, there are exceptions that do apply. Again, because of our kind of limited time today, we're focusing on some of the more common areas of exemptions that you might see. Uh, certainly, if folks are working in a particular industry that you don't believe the FLSA requirements might apply, welcome to reach out to us offline and we can address those a little bit more directly. The most commonly used exemptions are going to be exemptions for executive duties, administrative duties, and professional duties. There's also exceptions for sales employees, computer employees, and highly compensated employees. I'm going to focus really quickly on just some of those those first three because I think those come up more often than others depending on the industry that you're working within, obviously. With an executive, the important thing, again, you want to first make sure that they satisfy the salary basis test. Assuming that they satisfy the salary basis test, you can go to the next primary job duties test. You've noticed that it's no longer the duties test that I'm referring to. It's the primary duties test. Ultimately, for these employees, you want to make sure that their primary job duties satisfy the requirements. If occasionally an employee will engage in filing or will engage in something that does not require the type of independent discretion that usually would be attributed to these exempt positions, that is completely fine. However, the minute that most of their job duties are non-exempt is when you're going to run in, run into trouble with classification issues. So for an executive employee, as part of their primary duties, one of the questions you want to make sure is that they are not engaged in manual labor. What does that mean? Often we might get questions, for example, about employees who are working 
suppose that they're working on an oil rig. If the employee that you are looking for the exemption is more often than not, if their primary job duties include working with their hands, you're going to likely have trouble classifying them as exempt because they are engaged in that manual labor. Assuming that they are not engaged in manual labor, for an executive, you will want to make sure that they satisfy essentially two requirements. One is that they direct at least two full-time equivalent employees. And when I say full-time equivalent, that would that could be one person and then two part-time folks or four part-time folks or two employees who are full-time. The important thing is that that individual is managing at least or supervising directly those two individuals. They will be allowed to be classified as an executive. There is another requirement, however. They need to also have certain authority to effectively supervise and manage the employees. What does that mean? Do they have the right to hire and fire individuals? Or can they effectively make recommendations that whoever higher up will ultimately take into consideration their recommendations? That's generally going to satisfy the executive classification. The more common classification that we see is the administrative exemption. But it's important to note, as I mentioned earlier, this extends, this job duties test extends much further than just the title. Just because someone is titled as an administrative professional, for example, does not mean that they automatically qualify as exempt. When it comes to evaluating whether someone satisfies the administrative exemption, the important thing is to look at, there's essentially two, two issues. One, does the employee exercise discretion and independent judgment in general? And second, do they exercise that discretion with respect to matters of significance? This is really, I'd say this is one of those more complicated areas of exemption because when it comes to what's a matter of significance, there's a lot of variation. Examples of what might constitute whether something is of significance would involve advising a company on business operations or advising on government relations or quality control. It's not enough to simply take instruction and have no independent discretion. Filing papers, for example, is not going to satisfy that independent judgment over matters of significance has to be something that ultimately really impacts the company. Lastly, professional exemption is something that will come up fairly often. There's actually two different types of professional exemptions. There's the learned professional and then there's the creative professional. Ultimately, with the learned professional, it's going to require an advanced degree in learning or science. Often just a bachelor's degree is not going to be sufficient you're going to want to have a prolonged course of study that ultimately that individual worker is using on a regular basis. I'm not going to get into the sales exemptions and the computer exemption and the highly compensated exemption, other than to say the number of times that I have seen folks try to classify a computer employee as exempt just because they work on a computer. It's getting to the point where I feel like I need to make a professional service announcement. 
Just because someone works on computers does not mean that they satisfied the exemption. If you have folks who are classified as computer employee exempt, I would encourage you to go and look at the actual definition on DOL's website of what it takes to be a computer exempt employee because it is a very high threshold and it involves a special type of knowledge and work that goes hand in hand with working on those computers. So just go look, make sure that you're properly doing it. Matt touched on this earlier, but independent contractors are not covered by the FLSA overtime or minimum wage standards. I do want to add a big caveat there. And if I was going to really make this accurate, I would revise the statement just a little bit to say properly classified independent contractors are not covered by the FLSA. Matt's going to get into this shortly, but it's important just because you call someone an independent contractor does not necessarily mean that they are properly classified as an independent contractor. So you wanna make sure that you're getting that right. We got one question, so I think I'm gonna raise it because it's especially relevant to if you perform work on a service contract act. For the creative exemption, if a government contract includes the SCA and the wage determination includes a position such as a graphic designer, does this automatically require the person to be classified as non-exempt? So this is a great question, mostly because the SCA, the SCA is one of those additional reasons that it's really important to get your folks properly classified, because if you do not properly classify them and they're working on an SCA, all those lists of the worst case scenario that Matt went over are suddenly multiplied, because not only have you violated potentially the FLSA for failing to classify someone appropriately, but for those who may not be familiar with SBA requirements, it requires a minimum prevailing wage be paid. And if you have not classified individuals correctly under the SBA as exempt or as non-exempt, all of a sudden you're not just looking at overtime back wage payments, but you're also looking at failure to pay the prevailing wage. You're looking at failure to pay holiday requirements and sick leave requirements and PTO requirements. So there are a number of issues that can crop up if you're working in the SCA space. I will also add that often when DOL is looking at whether you have properly classified an SCA individual as exempt, they are going to first stop look at their directory of occupations. That's a nifty little directory that DOL has published that essentially has a list of hundreds of different job classifications. Chances are, if the job that your employee is performing is included in that SCA directory of occupations, DOL is not going to accept that that employee is exempt. If you do want to continue to classify them as exempt, you better have a really good reason for why they satisfy. In this case, the question is about a graphic designer for why they satisfy the creative or learned professional exemption. Because ultimately, FLSA law applies to whether this employee is exempt or non-exempt. So if you can properly classify them as exempt, great. But if you don't, it's going to be a little bit of a uphill battle because DOL believes they already see the writing on the wall. That's my quick interlude about the SCA. I think that wraps us up for FLSA classification. Matt, I'm going to let you take us through the independent contractor issues that we see. Certainly. Thanks, Sarah. And real quick, I wanted to circle back on an interesting point you brought up uh, regarding safe harbors under the FLSA. Now, 
if the employer would qualify for the state the safe harbor, that does not mean that after the employee is determined to be non exempt, they still have to pay that employee any back overtime, correct? Yes. Overtime great great point. It really applies to uh the willfulness standards. So Matt, I think you mentioned earlier, depending on the circumstances, there could be a look back period of either two years or three years. Correct. That relates to whether there has been a bad faith classification. So if you really went out of your way to classify, I don't know, let's pick a a janitor. A janitor is not going to be exempt. There's no way they're going to satisfy the requirements for an exemption. And anyone who classifies a janitor as an exempt is either willfully ignorant of the requirements or in intentionally trying to get away from those overtime requirements. In that situation, it is very possible that the DOL could attribute sort of a bad faith classification and include that three-year look-back period. The safe harbor, essentially, if you make a good faith effort to properly classify your folks, then they're going to look back only two years instead of three. Which can be significant damages. Absolutely. Unfortunately, some states have much longer periods of look back. And so, again, just because you get out of the federal requirement doesn't necessarily mean you're home free. There could be some additional state requirements that apply. All right. Thank you very much, Sarah. And so now with respect to independent contractors, you might be asking just what is an independent contractor? Well, an independent contractor, self-employed person or entity, contracted to perform work for or provide services to another entity as a non-employee and the entity paying for the services of the contractor. Now, we see an independent contractor relationship often in construction and uh, government contracting world. Now, independent contractors, again, are not employees within, if they're, as Sarah pointed out, they're properly classified. They're not employees within the meaning of the FLSA or the DOL's regulation. In essence, an independent contractor is self-employed, and they, they are their own business. Now, com- again, common types of independent contractors, in addition to the construction and government contracting industry, can include freelance writers, auto repair mechanics, newspaper delivery. <laughs> I'm kind of dating myself here. I used to deliver newspapers earlier in my life, cable TV installation, and physician, physician assistants, and other medical personnel. We quite often see independent contractor classification for those types of positions. And a lot of times, independent contractors will have an agreement in place with the business to whom they provide services that kind of delineates their duties, responsibilities, and the classification of their employment. Now, in general, an individual is an independent contractor if the payer has the right to control or direct only the result of the work. What the distinguishing hallmark of an independent contractor is that they are able to control the manner and means by which they perform their work or services. If that control for how they go about performing their work or services is given up to the entity they contracted with, they're not likely to be considered an independent contractor. As I'll touch on here in a little bit, this control aspect is really the one of the single biggest factors in determining whether or not an independent contractor is truly, as a matter of fact and law, an independent contractor. So why is it important that somebody's properly classified as an independent contractor? Well, for starters, an employer is not required to withhold income taxes, pay Social Security, 
Medicare taxes and or unemployment taxes on wages or provide any other statutorily required employment benefits. Uh, for example, if uh, a state would require that for employees, they'd be given uh, health care insurance or be provided a 401k retirement account, that does not apply in general to independent contractors. The, the payment of these taxes is the responsibility of the contractor, and they are typically compensated or paid at the end of the year. That payment is reflected in an IRS Form 1099. Now, how do we know if someone is, in fact, an independent contractor? As we touched on, both Sarah and I earlier, calling someone an independent contractor does not make them so. And my example under the Motor Carriers Act, the employer wanted those employees to be classified as an independent contractor for the benefits I just talked about. You don't have to pay taxes, withhold uh, Social Security, Medicare taxes, provide health insurance. And so the rationale is just classify them as independent contractors. And you, that, you cannot do that. Just the simple fact that you want a person to be an independent contractor does not make sense so. When this issue is litigated uh, as to whether or not an employee or I should say not an employee, a person is an independent contractor or an employee, courts have stated that they look to, quote unquote, the totality of the circumstances of that person's engagement of, of, of work to be performed to determine whether or not they are really an independent contractor or an employee. And oftentimes, that can be frustrating because no two circumstances can be alike, and courts are hesitant to ascribe too much weight to any particular factors. So it really is a case-by-case basis for whether or not a person is an employee or an independent contractor. Now, to determine whether a person is a true independent contractor, the court engages in a balancing test with multiple factors, none of which is dispositive. Under the FLSA, courts call this, quote-unquote, economics reality test. These elements are generally, one, the degree of control maintained over the independent contractor. The duties performed are, are by the independent contractor, are they on a temporary or permanent basis? And the contractor's opportunity to incur profits and losses, whether or not the services performed by the contractor are an integral part of the business. The independent contractor's investment in the equipment that they use, are they using their own? Are they using the employer's facilities? Or are they using their own? And then lastly, how much skill is required to perform these services? Now, again, no one factor is dispositive, but courts give heavy weight and emphasize that the degree of control maintained over the contractor's performance of their duties is critical to the classification determination. And as I stated earlier, when we look at my example, the employer ended up ultimately setting their work schedules, required them to go through mandatory safety training, dictated their duties, and controlled how, in accordance with policy, they were supposed to go about performing their duty. And at the end of the day, that level of control would indicate that those persons are not independent contractors who would be otherwise able to dictate their schedule, dictate how they go about performing work. Now, the employer has the ability to control the ultimate work product, but not the manner and method within which that work is performed. A true independent contractor can make those determinations. Can I add one thing, Matt? Sure. Sorry to interrupt. Matt was going over some of the factors that can support a classification for an independent contractor. I just wanted to touch on one of them, which is whether or not there's an agreement in place that says that they're an independent contractor. That will tend to support, yeah, that will tend to support a finding of independent contractor. But there are some provisions in an agreement that can undermine that assumption. For example, one of the most 
common issues that we see in independent contractor agreements is that workers are paid essentially in accordance with the company's regular payroll processes. And that is a huge red flag. If someone is receiving their paycheck every, you know, weekly, just like employees, that is often going to signal that this individual is really functioning like an employee. It's much better to require them to submit a biweekly or monthly invoice. So that's one example of where the agreement itself can actually undermine a finding. And there's a few other things that we look for. So just because you have an agreement in place doesn't necessarily mean that your policies and procedures are tailored in the best way to sort of satisfy the exemption. And to build off that, Sarah, even if that person would want to be classified as an independent contractor, that does not in and of itself make them an independent contractor. 100%. Yep. We'll receive questions often where independent contracts, the company says, well, I, I don't know what to do. This is how he wants to work, which there are certain benefits that employees can gain from being classified as an independent contractor that there's risk involved, however. There's a question that came up. If a company hires an independent contractor to perform work for an end customer, and the company has already told the end customer how the work will be done, can the company tell the independent contractor how to do the services? If it's because that's how the end customer, not necessarily the company, wants that done. I think this is getting to the question about the means of the work performed. And and it starts getting to that level of control. And, you know, a lot of times the attorney's favorite phrase is it depends. And and, in this type of scenario, it it really depends on the totality of what's occurring, what what level of controls can be governed to get that independent contractor to deliver the end product, which the employer is allowed to manage the quality of that end product. It really depends. And it's tough to say, put me on the spot here, if whether or not that <laughs> no, that I person. agree. <laughs> I will add that, that um, <laughs> we deal with this often with government contracts, right? Because ultimately, it's the government customer that's determining, for example, hours of operation, uh, whether employees need to be on site, the type of equipment that workers need to use. Often, my experience is that DOL or the state agency that's investigating will take that into consideration and will sometimes take into consideration industry standards as well. And so often, often you will get away with it. There is an exception, though. We didn't really touch on this, but of course, California always has some different rules. California makes it really difficult to classify individuals as independent contractors if they perform work that is in the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So, for example, if you're in construction and you engage an independent contractor to also perform a type of construction that you already perform, California, under what's referred to as the AB test, ABC test, is going to say, that's incorrect, that's an employee. And so you want to be careful, again, that you're looking at the state requirements. Thank you for those points. I was very informative. And a lot of times, of course, I've seen that the analysis of whether or not an employee or an, is an independent contractor, an employee, you know, given this, these circumstances about how the end customer wants certain provisions are done, it, it can be very tough to predict how a court will come out on those issues. Every court you know, analyzes the facts the best they can in accordance to law, and it's tough to say, you know, what would the outcome of that be? It, it's, it's one factor, and, it's get, and the control is given weight, but it will also be taken in light of the other factors surrounding the relationship. And those other factors could outweigh the control necessary to deliver the product 
that the customer wants. So hopefully we answered that question. Very good question. And it just shows the level of uncertainty sometimes that, that can occur when classifying somebody as an independent contractor as opposed to an employee. So common errors that lead to misclassification. Again, as we touched on earlier, misclassification affects virtually every industry and business. And a lot of times we'll see repeat and or common errors across the certain employers and businesses and, and respective industries that lead to misclassification. So of these common errors, first, paying the employee a salary that meets the FLSA's minimum threshold for an exempt employee. As Sarah discussed earlier, not only must the employee receive a salary that meets this FLSA's minimum threshold, but the employee's job duties must also be of an exempt nature. So you, you really need that salary and job duties test has to be satisfied. The fact that they are receiving pay on a salary basis above the threshold does not in and of itself mean that they're an exempt employee for the variety of good reasons Sarah discussed. So again, it's the salary basis job duties test determines this. So when determining whether or not to classify an employee, and salary is only a start, what does that employee do? And do those job duties fit within an, an exemption under the FLSA? Second, as also as um, Sarah touched on earlier, the job title is used to determine exempt status. Job titles in and of themselves do not determine whether an exemption applies. Again, it's the salary basis and job duties. That job title could be of an executive nature, title as a director, or what have you. But when you drill down to what they're actually doing, the duties can be of a non-exempt nature. Rarely we'll see that for persons higher in the, especially management thresholds, but depending on what the job duty is and does that comport with the job title, the job title is not going to, to win out. If a lawsuit is brought and the employee claims to be non-exempt, the job title that they operate under will not carry the day. Third, automatic exemption for employees because of their attainment of advanced degrees. As Sarah also mentioned. Sorry, guys. I, I tend to do this. <laughs> I sort of fill the beans in advance, but it's a good recap. Thanks, okay. Matt. We are reiterating each other. This is great. The simple fact that an employee may have a bachelor's degree does not mean that they're an exempt employee. Under the professional exemption, learned professionals require an advanced degree in a field of science or, or learning. And that exemption is very uh, detailed as to what meets those requirements, but the simple fact that you have an advanced degree does not in and of itself mean you're exempt. Again, it goes to your salary, the salary basis test, and job duties test. Fourth, deductions made to salary. Also, as Sarah touched on, exempt employee must generally receive full compensation for that pay period, and it does not fluctuate regardless of the number of hours they work. There are certain limited exceptions to where deductions can be made for pay, from a salary without jeopardizing the exempt status. One of those is when an employee decides to take uh, unpaid uh, leave under the Family Medical Leave Act, or the FMLA. FMLA leave and uh, is unpaid leave, and that would not jeopardize an employee's exempt status if they go on FMLA leave. So if you make deductions from the exempt employee's salaries because they leave work early for personal reasons, for attendance or performance issues, the business closes on a holiday, if the employee fails to return company property or other situations where deductions are off limits, you may jeopardize the employee's exempt status. And lastly, if the worker prefers to be classified as an independent contractor, again, this is not dispositive despite their wishes, and we 
we can understand uh, that certain persons would want to be classified as an independent contractor and that employers generally would want to classify certain persons as independent contractors. This in and of itself does not make that person an independent contractor. And that does not necessarily meet the test for independence. Again, the totality of their circumstances, of their engagement with the business that's going to determine whether or not they're an independent contractor. So what are the costs of misclassification? If an employee is improperly classified, whether that be based on a particular exemption under the FLSA or improperly classified as an independent contractor, when in reality, they are an employee, there are potential penalties which can be quite significant for this wage and hour violation. The first is FLSA penalties. As we discussed a little bit earlier, um, the FLSA can impose penalties of rather stiff nature if an employee is improperly classified. This includes payment from, for a look-back period of two to three years, depending on the nature of the classification and the basis for that classification, for back overtime wages. In addition, there's a liquidated damage provision. So under the FLSA, let's say if there's overtime is owed, the amount of $15,000, there would be an equal amount owed on VFLSA of $15,000 for the misclassification, in addition to attorney's fees, which can be quite significant. Given the nature of the litigation, whether or not it's class or collective action, and the claims uh, brought, attorney's fees can be quite significant, sometimes running into hundreds of thousands of dollars, all of which are provided for under the FLSA. FLSA wage and hour violations for misclassification contain some pretty uh, stiff penalties. Secondly, when an employee is misclassified, especially when they're classified as exempt versus non-exempt, generally em employers do not maintain hours. The employee's hours actually work. Now, in litigation, the burden of proving an exemption or the applicability of an exemption is on the employer. And if that fails at trial or in uh, motions practice, and the employer cannot prove the hours the employee actually worked, Courts will give significant weight to the employee's version of events and what hours they claim to work because there's no competing evidence to show what hours that employee actually worked because the employer didn't maintain that under the thinking that they were exempt. So not having those hours available as potential source of significant liability on the damages side if this goes forward to litigation. You can also be subject to a uh, Department of Labor investigation. As I stated earlier, wage to hour laws lend themselves to have collective and class actions brought. And a DOL investigation signals to all the employees that something is not right with the manner that they're being paid in or the amount that they're being paid in. And if the DOL does not take jurisdiction over those claims, to seek out private counsel and pursue those claims. And that wage and hour statutes make it very uh, enticing for private lawyers, private plaintiff lawyers to bring these sorts of claims. Also, as a result of this classification, you can be subject to an IRS or state taxing authority audit. The IRS can conduct an audit of the employer's pay practices to ensure that all taxes are being paid and have been paid timely. If due to misclassification, especially in the, in the context with independent contractors, if employer taxes have not been paid that be owed to the IRS, those taxes would be owed plus county. And for my Motor carrier exemption example, this is where their rubber met the road, even though those employees were ultimately exempt from the FLSA, the employer was not withholding taxes appropriately under the applicable standards, and those had to be paid to the IRS, which caused a, a very large headache when taxes are not withheld. So an IRS, nobody likes an IRS auditor in their personal life or 
on the business side, but it's a potential ramification of improper misclassification. And lastly, especially for independent contractors, when there are work-related injuries, uh, independent contractors are not eligible to receive workers' compensation benefits. And if they are ultimately, they attempt to claim workers' compensation benefits or the matter gets litigated regarding their classification, there could be a potential negligence suit for the, the improper classification that caused them to not be able to receive workers' compensation coverage. So these are all some of the potential risks of misclassifying employees, whether it be as exempt versus non-exempt, or as an employee versus independent contractor. Closing thought. So again, misclassifying employees, as you have undoubtedly seen, is a costly mistake that can happen to almost any company. And how do you go about taking action to prevent improper classification or remedying classification? The best way to go about this is to be proactive and take preventative measures. First, regularly review employees' job duties and record findings. Compare the job duties performed by the employee to their job description and to the applicable exemption that they would fall under under the FLSA. Second, do not make assumptions. Again, job title, education level, assumptions can get you into trouble. If you make an assumption based upon someone's job title, ultimately you're performing non-exempt duties. That would lead to misclassification and the penalties under the FLSA. For independent contractors, review your level of control over the performance of their duties. Ensure that they are truly independent contractors and not managed as you would your own employee. Fourth, review personnel manuals and payroll practices. As Sarah touched on, having independent contractors on the regular payroll period for employees is highly suspect and can get you in trouble. And lastly, be aware of changes uh, in legislation to wage and hour regulations. Each state is different and how they treat independent contractors or exempt employees is different. The FLSA provides minimum and the federal law and each state can build on top of that as we've seen with minimum wage, 725 an hour in the FLSA, but in California and certain uh, localities it can be over $15 an hour. So the FLSA is just a minimum. Just because you may comply with the FLSA does not mean that you're in compliance with state and or local work. And if in the event that you have identified the misclassification has occurred, it's important to correct and report the misclassification. The Department of Labor and IRS's website each contain instructions on how to correct a misclassification and report suspected misclassification. And doing so, it's kind of like with the NCAA, self-reported violations generally tend to come with less death penalties. And lastly, when in doubt, your legal counsel can be your friend to provide uh, some guidance or to, if there's misclassifications occurred and it ultimately gets litigated, to step in and uh, hopefully mitigate those risks. Thanks so much for participating. If you have any other questions, Matt or I would be happy to address those. Thanks again for joining and we appreciate you tuning in for this fun topic. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Maza production and music credits go to binsound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.